I remember in 2007 at South by Southwest, we introduced this feature that would allow you to destroy content on your Facebook page so that Facebook servers wouldn't hold it. You could basically place it there and then you could eradicate it on your own and it you wouldn't be you know, giving copyright and data to Facebook. And the reception was like, why would you ever need that? This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Owen Tripp, founder and CEO of Grand Rounds, was brought up by parents who taught him you could do whatever you choose to do and that there was not one clear path to the right door. Owen has taken this to heart, starting adult life as a Spanish major and working his way through tech to healthcare as an avowed entrepreneur, firmly committed to the unbridled optimism of Silicon Valley. Like this guy already. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywitz. And I'm Lisa Sunan, and we're grateful to GE Ventures for sponsorship of today's episode. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. So, David, there's been all this talk about Amazon and getting yes, into healthcare. Yes, Lisa. They acquired PillPack in the last couple of weeks. I thought did, that was a good one. Did a deal with Zelf. I actually thought they'd already done it. It was so weird. Um, <laughs> hired tons of smart people, have the Alexa program going for healthcare. So are they the tech company that figures it out, you think? Yes. That's my quick answer. I'm really, <laughs> too, I've been very impressed with them. Um, I, I kind of ad- agreed with what uh, Ann Wachitsky said um, at a recent panel where they were talking about what are the different, um, what's the likelihood of different healthcare companies, you know, Apple uh, and Amazon. And I think Amazon, um, just like she said, have an incredible ability to execute. And I think the relentless focus on the consumer and on value and on really figuring out what the best solution is, not how to press their tech into a particular application. So I'm pretty optimistic long-term about uh, their ability to succeed. So it's a good segue as our guest today, Owen Tripp, was one of the finalist candidates for the CEO job at the new Amazon Berkshire Hathaway J.P. Morgan Healthcare Enterprise. Welcome to Tectonics, Owen. Nice to see you both. Great to have you on the show today and live in the studio. Live, baby. So why didn't you take the job? Not a good enough discount on books? <laughs> yeah, I needed to boost the benefits of my Amazon Prime membership before I could agree <laughs> to it. No, I, uh, it's simple. Um, I stepped out of the process because um, I love what we're doing at Grand Rounds. And uh, we have an incredible opportunity. I think that's one that's going to take some time. And uh, I had committed to my team and to my board that we would see that through. So what do you think about what they're doing? How do what what do you what inspires you about what they're doing and what what cautions do you have for them? I love what they're doing. Uh, you know, I've actually fantasized about the idea of what would happen if you took over all of employer care. I know that sounds like an incredibly lame fantasy. It really but does. There you go. We're <laughs> getting to know but each other. I know other. you're married. It's okay. um, <laughs> so so but it but it's true because a lot of what's happening in the employer world is that people know the right answers, but there isn't the wherewithal institutional power to get it done from the top. And what's different about this one is that they have the commitment of three of probably the most legendary CEOs, certainly the most legendary CEOs of our time saying this is important to us and we're going to do everything in our power to make it happen. Is that still going to be enough to have it go through? We'll see, right? So I think that uh, we'll see. Uh, I think that they need to build out a great team behind a tool. They need to continue that commitment when it gets hard to do so, when they find that a unified benefit structure might not be pleasing to some of the constituents at at various companies. But I think that having those people out there talking about it, uh, pounding their fists on the table, and investing in great leadership is a a great start. It's the best start I've seen. So what about the other big tech companies out there in the mix, Google or Apple, Facebook, whomever? Is is any of it going somewhere, or is this not going to be cracked by small companies, entrepreneurs like you? Well, I think the, the, the question is, what's, what's happening is you see a lot of these companies saying, we want to be in healthcare. It's a huge part of our economy. 
and none of us really actually have a very large play other than selling to the providers of uh, of those services today. Um, the question always gets phrased as, who is going to be the winner? Uh, guys, remember, this is 20% or roughly 20% of our economy. There will be multiple winners, and I think many of those companies will carve off big slices for themselves. They'll do it differently. Uh, some will focus on consumers. Some will focus on the enterprise stack. Some will focus on the, the data interoperability. But I'm optimistic that many of them will be around to play. The question is whether they will have the patience for it. Because yeah. if you're evaluating things in a two-year uh, IRR sort of manner, um, none of those projects are going to rise to the top. It's just so interesting because, you know, when you hear from some of these companies about what's happening behind the scenes, there really is a lot often a lot of tension between some of the folks who are trying to do the healthcare stuff and then the folks who do want the quicker wins who are used to sort of the what you might call more of a tech mentality. And there's far more tension between sort of the tech and healthcare people than you might know from some of the headlines yeah. at some of these other companies. Yeah, so, it's fascinating to me because more and more tech people from the venture side continue to pile into healthcare deals. And I sit here and, and scratch my head because it just seems like that's going to be, you know, they're just headed for disappointment, I think, in a lot of ways. Well, because at the macro level, the fundamentals are so attractive, right? Mm -hmm. Huge TAM, right. Uh, industry incumbents, no benefits from technology yet. Like, why not pile into that pool? It's, you know, the water's warm. Let's do it. But the return curve. The water's warm because everybody's peeing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because because, uh, because Cerner peed in the pool. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the, but the, the problem is that the, the return curves are just slow. And so um, I think there will be incredible riches to those who are patient and wait it out uh, and invest behind the people to make it possible. Well, let's back up a bit. Sure. And um, like many kids graduating from college, when you graduated from college, you started in consulting for the precursor to Accenture, which you thought was going to be a problem since Anderson was going away. Right. You said the best thing you learned was etiquette and what you don't want to do. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I, th I just love the idea of starting in one of these professional services where they expect a lot of you and they teach you how to be a professional. Um, you know, what does a proper email look like? How should you format a persuasive argument? I mean, these things sound underwhelming compared to what we're expected to do as leaders today. But so many of the people I work with or interview come in lacking basic training on what it's like to work with a group of human beings and accomplish things as a team. And, and consulting is a great place to start. I, I thought it was interesting because when you were um – you're, you're, you've, you know, uh, in another one of our colleagues' podcasts, you were talking about um, sort of how not to be sort of a tech entrepreneur and involved etiquette. You described somebody where you said, you know, if you're a doctor or you're trained in something, don't show up somewhere and like sort of like with your company T-shirt as like Mr. Cool Person. Right. Um, and that sort of comes off bad. And Lisa wrote about somebody we know who did that. Um, is, is that not right? I mean, is, is there – people sort of say, oh, they want to be part of the, what they perceive as the Silicon Valley scene. They want to sort of not be stuffy. Because the flip side is I've been to these sort of business casual cardiology meetings. And business casual is still an elegant suit and a tie. Right. So right. it's sort of like it's for cardiology. It's a tie. You know, that's exactly right. I remember when my co-founder and I were criticized for showing up at one of the most famous academic medical centers, and we didn't wear ties. We wore a, shoot, uh, I'm sorry, a suit and a collared shirt, but we didn't wear a tie. And, and it was, how dare you show up in this environment uh, without proper uh, attire? So my comments aren't really just about how you dress. It actually, it's about what it shows about your humility. So here's what's different. When I was purely a tech entrepreneur, pulling reputation.com out of the ground, you know, you had to show up edgy. You had to show up you know, demonstrating to the world that you saw something that they didn't see yet. And that was kind of expected and, and part of the game. Um, there are a lot of things that have been tried long before I got into the game at Grand Rounds. And so 
I think it doesn't hurt me and it certainly doesn't hurt, hurt our company to show up and say, I'm going to listen first. I'm going to expect that you've already thought about some of these problems and now let's get down to business. We're going to have a point of view. We want to change things. You can even call us disruptive, although I don't love that word. But we're going to actually listen before we jump in. But you had also some formative thoughts on leadership and you know, hiring and, and all of that when you were in that experience at, at Accenture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what Accenture does, and there are many companies like this, I think they do a, a particularly good job, is they mint leaders. They mint thinkers and leaders um, and system-level changers. And, you know, Lisa, you and I talked about this earlier. One of the things that I think is lacking in these, what is still early days of a, of a digital healthcare revolution is, What's the leadership academy? And by that, I don't literally mean the institution. I mean, what are the organizations that are that are creating the next waves of leadership? We can look around and we see some early evidence of company success. We don't yet see the PayPal equivalent of a great company who focused on building the people who are going to go out and build a whole bunch of other things. And that's, as you know, one of the things we're focused on at Grand Rounds. So you were ultimately drawn by the siren song of Silicon Valley when you joined eBay back in 2004. What is it about Silicon Valley that got you excited, keeps you excited, and is the TV show accurate or not? No, it has three commas in it, Richard. Uh, a sentence with two positive phrases in it? No, a billion dollars. Yeah, I'm in the three comma club. You know, you play your cards right, you could be in the three comma club too. But probably not. But you could be. But probably not. <laughs> the TV show is, as I'm sure many of your listeners recognize, shockingly accurate not, <laughs> not with respect to the facts although there there are a lot close. of inside references to things that have happened um but uh no but hot what, dog not hot dog that's right, right. <laughs> hot dog not hot dog that actually is a good application of ai that, you know, that, <laughs> that that was the joke of that show was that that that's actually about where we are that's the state of the art um the 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 thing that is deeply appealing and seductive about Silicon Valley still is for me is the sense of optimism. It's the it's this it's the sense that you know there isn't a, a mountain too high a problem that wouldn't benefit from some open minded thinking and, and some great blockchain team. and yeah we'll get to that. <laughs> uh, but but I come from the Boston area which has all the same level of smarts, the great universities, uh, a great practical way of solving problems. What's different about the Boston area, uh, which I still love. Uh, is this sense of optimism? It's the it's the western. You know, it's not the western frontier. It's more how do we protect the ideas that have gotten us thus far, rather than discover the ideas that are going to take us into the future. But what about the bro culture out here? I mean, that really is a thing, right? What is it going to change? Is it changing? I think it's changing. This is one of the things that if we do our jobs properly, health tech can really lean in on. Uh, no pun intended, because we've got you know uh, taking only grand rounds. Sixty percent of our workforce is female. Uh, over fifty percent of our leadership staff is uh, is women, um, and and you know I think uh, that looks completely different than any of the other places. In fact, I know that looks completely different than any of the other. Yeah, you're mentioning. I think eBay. It's more like fifteen percent. Yeah, something like it was that. when I was there. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I can't comment on where it is now. And Reputation.com was probably twenty to twenty-five percent, so a little bit better, but still shocking. And is that behind where we need to is be. the you know you mentioned the great numbers um, uh, at um, um, Grand Round? Is that true at the senior leadership level as well? It absolutely is. Yep, all the way all the way down. We have and uh, in, in where we're investing, or I should say, I'm focused this <clears throat> year is we have one woman on the board. She's an amazing woman, Kathleen Sebelius, great leader, um, uh, powerhouse as we know in the policy world, but also just a phenomenal organizational mind. We need to do more work there. Um, so I have a couple of independent seats open and. Uh, if anybody wants to call me, we're we're actively recruiting. Great. Um, so, what was it like being at eBay during that rising tide of that company? Man, I loved it because 
Think about how crazy that idea was yeah, back then. Yeah, totally. That you would buy something. You know, I'm sitting in Sight Lisa's unseen. office here with a with you know some cool vintage stuff that she could have bought off eBay. And you know, you have people I'm who are sure passionate. That came from eBay. Yeah, you have passionate about Mighty Mouse clocks. And I'm going to connect with somebody who's you know 2,000 miles away from me, who I'll never meet, who I know nothing about, and we're going to pay each other. And I'm going to pay you before the product ever arrives. And I have confidence that's going to happen. Yeah. So I love the way we thought about community. It was the the best of, of tech meets. Uh, and what's humanity. the best thing you bought when you were at eBay? Well, I was a huge collector of Wheaties boxes. Not because I particularly liked the cereal, actually. Um, but I loved the uh, that bright, hopeful orange and the sports scenes that would be depicted on the front. So I have a whole uh, bunch of New England uh, vintage sports Wheaties boxes. Very nice. Like Carlton Fisk? Or? Yeah, we got Bill Russell, Carlton Fisk, Larry Bird, uh, Pedro Martinez, the early Patriots uh, dynasty. Excellent. Wow. Very Fantastic. Cool. Love it. So you left, though. You left for business school at Stanford. Super Silicon Valley thing to do. Yeah. Um, what did you uh, What did you hope to get out of that, and what did you get out of that? Well, I thought – so I, I worked in the technology organization at eBay and, and then later at PayPal, and what I thought – I needed was more financial training to start a company. I knew I wanted to start a company. That was that was you know clear to me, and I thought that I would need to understand finance, finance, accounting, um, and all that sort of stuff. The reality is, I actually think that training teaches you more about why you shouldn't <laughs> start a company. Not Stanford in particular. I think Stanford is very serious about their entrepreneurship curriculum. I would think, but generally, you know, the the an MBA program teaches you how to quantify various risks in a system and manage them out. And uh, I, I think that um, I learned a lot there that, that you know, made me question whether my ideas would ever be good enough. But on the flip side, I met absolutely outstanding people, um, the best people to this day that, that I have had a chance to kind of project with, work with, um, get to know over a period of time, high integrity, skillful people. So it sounds like kind of an A plus for networking, for future networking. And then um, I guess you had a chance, you know, it sounds like there's an emphasis on what could go wrong or how to, how to, or how to you know, sort of... Uh, Manage risk. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how to um, think about that. I think that's right. You know, networking, not that you intended it this way, David, but I think networking can be undervalued. I don't mean like a glass of Chardonnay at a cocktail hour eating shrimp. It's it's really how do I dig in, work together as a team, understand people who come from different countries, different cultural backgrounds, and still accomplish a goal. That's what I learned there and how to start to think about those teams and structures. It's really so interesting because when you think of contrast it to other kinds of, you know, uh, training, that are, they do tend to be more, you know, professional. Like if you go to law school, I, my understanding is, you know, you learn these are all the aspects you need to be a successful lawyer. You, certainly for medical school, it's okay. You know, this is anatomy, you know, the, you know, the hip bone connected to the leg bone or whatever. But um, but when you talk to folks who are at business school, what seems to be a real, uh, just a very powerful takeaway is how they think about engaging with other people. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. I think it's not at the end of the day, you know, so Stanford is a very rigor- rigorous academic curriculum. What you have to demonstrate in terms of command of economics and finances is, is intense, more so, I think, than other top MBA programs. But at the same time, this is not a technical program. To your point, it's about how do you understand and work in systems with, with other humans, you need to demonstrate technical prowess, but it's really about that connectedness. But even so, I reckon I, I seem to recall you you saying you're you know you're happy when you love the people you met, but it wasn't sort of a life inflection point. Well, I you know I don't know. I, you may be holding me to words that that I shared earlier. I would say it was a life inflecting event. 
on the question of entrepreneurship, I was starting a company at that time. It would be the first company I would start. I think looking back, I don't feel like I needed Stanford to co-found that business. But, but isn't uh, that where you met your co-founders? Uh, it, I met it. I met them on campus, but they were not business school co-founders. Got it. They were they were law school students and affiliated with law school. So tell us about that. This Reputation.com, a company that now has customers in a hundred countries around yep. the world, right? So, and I know you've talked about it, but tell people what it is. But you also talked about how it was ahead of its time. Yeah. Well, so the the founding idea at Reputation was that the internet and specifically the first page or first two pages of Google search results would be the way that we would come to understand anybody. I think that that turned out to be true, that there are no more resumes, there aren't formal CVs that we that we use to introduce ourselves to each other, that if we're doing basic diligence and research, we're going to start with those search results. And if that were true, two things needed to be in the hands of the consumer. One, you need to be able to quantify and understand what that actually meant, ideally relative to others. And two, you'd like the ability to um, remediate risks as they came up. And we were starting in a time when, you know, kids were getting outed for their sexuality uh, on the internet. People were picking and bullying, bullying each other. Divorces would go sour. Photos would be shared that were inappropriate. And so, you know, we really started fighting on behalf of the little guy. And I loved that business, still love that business. But we were early. I mean, we actually, I remember in 2007 at South by Southwest, we introduced this feature that would allow you to destroy content on your Facebook page so that Facebook servers wouldn't hold it. You could basically place it there and then you could eradicate it on your own and it w- you wouldn't be you know, giving copyright and data to Facebook. And the reception was like, why would you ever need that? You know, <laughs> Why would we ever worry about the data How that ironic. we're giving to yeah. Facebook? 11 years later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we were just early and I think that's true about a lot of entrepreneurship uh, is that you get it, you know, the, the product concepts are right, um, but they're ahead of, what the market will is it support. better to be ahead or behind? What's is it? What's worse? It's ahead. You know the the classic analogy here is you want to be right on the wave, and when you feel that wave starting to lift up behind you, you got to paddle like a like a son of a gun. Yeah. You know? And I think that's true a lot in healthcare. I see people investing in. You joked about blockchain and AI. It's not a question of whether blockchain and mm. AI are going to matter in healthcare. I think they are, but we have so many other problems we got to solve first, where the market is absolutely ready. I agree with you. I think I think as an investor. One of the challenges I see with those is I think it's going to take a really long time. And so the first companies in are going to be the first companies to fail, not the first companies to get rich. Yeah. Because it just takes so long for adoption. That's exactly right. And I think you can get funded in in this climate on a series a series seed or a series A sort of pitch that focuses there, but then you're you're an aqua hire eighteen months later because yeah. you haven't figured out the business yeah. model. If you're lucky. If you're lucky. If you're lucky. There's yeah, just so many companies. Right. So you went through a CEO transition at Reputation.com where you were the CEO. No, then, I was never the CEO. Oh, I thought you were. So no, no, no. no I was a co-founder and chief operating officer. Got it, got it, got uh, it. So my co-founder who he transitioned out and then is now actually the CEO again, which is an interesting experience. Uh, he um, is an extraordinary guy um, uh, and a brilliant intellect, and he was focused mostly on kind of the external elements of the business, and I focused on the internal company. So what was it like to leave your company that you founded? Why did you do that? I think it was hard. I think that there were a number of things that were in my heart that I wanted to do. Um, Building a healthcare business was always one of them, and uh, I knew that I could continue to uh, help drive the business there, but that probably given the number of years that I wanted to spend in the trenches of actually building things from the ground, 
that it would be time to, to go start something of this. What was it like to let go of something you'd started? I mean, it's incredibly hard. I think we've all been through it. They're, they're incredible learning experiences. You don't just walk out the door, um, you know, put away your photo and take your office plan and hope that you're going to, you know, recover the next day. You know, I went and um, uh, took myself to the Sierras and learned how to paddleboard and cook and got away and just you just have to yeah you need a bunch of healing because if you really cared about the thing in the first place it's going to take a while it's almost a litmus test that if you walk out the next day and can start something else you probably never cared that much in the in the first place interesting i don't know i think it probably depends on your personality whether you're good at as compartmentalizing yeah. or not <laughs> um so you started grand rounds in 2011 i think it was called consulting md back then yeah right? that's right and um what was the original idea and did that pan out? And what do you wish you knew now or knew then that you know now? Yep. So my co-founder is Rusty Hoffman, who's an amazing doc at Stanford. He's um, one of the world experts, if not the world expert in the minimally uh, invasive treatment of, of blood clots in the legs. And um, the, the story is, is well written online, uh, so you can research it. But the shorthand is that his kid got really sick. And the answer that he needed to make uh, his kid um, live past the age of eight was uh, to go out and do a whole bunch of research and connect with doctors to get evidence-based treatment that, that didn't exist at Stanford. And so the idea that we had was, what if we could fix the fact that information about expert care just doesn't flow properly? What if we could shorten the time between when a, something is proven to be efficacious and is applied broadly in the community by bringing experts to work on the most complex cases. So a marketplace of evidence-based knowledge. Yeah, and, and experts in particular. Now, what we got wrong about that, and I think you knew us in these times, was that we thought if we put up these experts at Mayo and Harvard and um, Cleveland Clinic, et cetera, and said, hey, come pay us, slap your credit card down, and we'll give you you know, a top-shelf evidence-based opinion. We got that completely wrong. Consumers, even people who are looking at a grave uh, diagnosis, do not think that they should be paying for care. And so the question we would get is... I, 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 I know that that's sort of where the conclusion that you drew, and it's sort of captivating because there are these sort of concierge health businesses where people just do do exactly that, particularly for, like you're saying, either severe diseases affecting kids or for cancers or for other serious conditions, it seems like at least a lot of people go, you know, they'll try to get, find, go anywhere in the world or what can they do to help themselves, their family member, their kids. Not a company's worth of people, though. It's fascinating, that, but from what you're saying, yeah. well, I mean, it seems like the model I don't. I don't know if we had had hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to try to build a consumer brand, whether we would have found something different. Because you're right. Just basic, you know, intuition is, and, and we all know people in our lives. You will not stop to find the right answer, and you are willing to spend money on it. And people fly places. Or some people are, and some people are willing to spend an awful lot of money. Of on course. It. I mean, it if literally you is it. life or death. Uh, but but we just maybe it was kind of the the you know, the compression or on the time frame that's, you know, implied by just having some basic seed funding that we couldn't do that. And so we needed to pivot it to run through the enterprise. Now, the enterprise on the flip side has a lot at stake. They do not want to see patients running around trying out uh, things that don't work, um, seeing 20 doctors with the same question and never finding an expert. So from an enterprise perspective, um, they were enthralled by what would be one of a very short, uh, very few number of ideas where you could go out and do something that was right for the employee, get them better care. That's intuitive. 
but also better for them because in doing that, you know, you would reduce unnecessary care, you'd get the recommendation um, done properly, and you'd shorten the time to the person getting what they needed. I mean, the way I've heard you describe it, which of course resonated, is that, you know, growing up, it sounds like you've benefited from, um, you know, uh, and I th- uh, having you know, a dad who's a doctor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you yet, too, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, certainly a number of the different people, not everyone, but some of the people we interview, and the idea was that, that shouldn't everybody have that experience? Yeah. And um, has it been in your ex- how has that worked out when, when you sort of give people that option to say, okay, you've described it as a win-win-win where it should be. And uh, what's sort of front of my mind is um, there are sort of some examples of uh, there's, there's a particular product I remember where the idea is somebody um, was going to help sur- a surgeon. Uh, it was a whole company. They were going to they, they sold a medical device and they were providing this back office uh, sort of uh, service that was going to help the patients do better, to help doctors do better, and help more people come to their device. And then patients just weren't that eager to use it. Yeah. How, 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 what has the uptake been? Yeah. So uh, let me first explain what you were referring to. So the idea with Grand Rounds is that, you know, a lot of healthcare innovation, I'm using, you can't see me, but I'm using finger quotes, yes. is <laughs> verified, finger quotes. Uh, Boom. So-called innovation is really just shifting uh, slices of the, you know, the, of, the, of the spend pie around to other people, but not really actually reducing it. Here, what we're doing is we're delivering against the patient. We've talked about that already. We're delivering for the sponsor of care. That's the employer. And then importantly, we're delivering for the providers, i.e. the doctors, who want to drive excellent care. The only people who lose out in the Grand Round system are lower quality providers who are over-treating and trying to attempt things with their patient population that just don't work. So you asked me in that context, what has engagement looked like? Because we all know that's the hardest single part. Um, I can share some pretty good stuff on it. In our first model, Beacon, we were able to triple the average utilization that earlier legacy companies had attempted in the second opinion program. And then more importantly, in our second product, Summit, which is a navigation product, um, we have you know half or over half of the population that will come and say, yeah, we're, we're willing to actually start our journey with you. We're not just finding expertise now. We're finding any form of care. We're solving administrative problems associated with healthcare. And you're able to keep that engagement beyond the first couple of months? I think so far so good, but I, but I would actually appreciate the intellectual clarity for you to ask me that question again in two years because I don't know. Right? Well, it seems and like if you do a good job, people should get better. They shouldn't be engaged. They, well, but if you're trying to have a broader, at least I don't know, arguing what you're, the person who actually knows is sitting here. Um, <laughs> but no, no, but I thought that the idea is that you're trying to have broader engagement, that they initially engage about one aspect of their health, but then you sort of keep them for other other benefits of engagement. That's right. And so, you know, the, the difference between us and others in this space who have a similar model is that we're really focused on the clinical interaction. We don't think that people want to engage in healthcare just to engage in healthcare. But if they're sick or they're worried about being sick or somebody in their house is sick or they have a big bill that they have to figure out how they're going to pay for, those are ways to get people involved and engaged in the story. Um, I do think it's early days on all of this stuff, but I'm hopeful, and I'm hopeful that if you just put the patient-physician relationship in the driver's seat, people will come back to healthcare and say, I'm going to get the results I want. I can be hopeful about what my journey looks like from here. So thinking about leadership, because I know that's really important to you. You talked about it already a little bit. Um, you know, you're somebody who's who's known, you know, I think more lovingly than most in the health tech community for, for that commitment, uh, which is, I you know, for guys with your pedigree and background, that is not the typical story. So what is it about this that drives you? You know, what is, 
the work you're doing to, to, to build that leadership, that PayPal diaspora, as you called yep. it, you know, and have you had a time where you feel like you failed at that, where you had to learn something different? Of course. I mean, I think you feel failure when people who you really love and respect uh, leave before you think they're ready to leave. I think that's one way that a CEO always feels this. Um, people focus CEOs do at any rate. You feel it um, quite literally in the gut. Um, our commitment to it is wholly real, and it's not just because we like to think of ourselves as good people, but because we think that's absolutely the business path to success. And here's why. For as, as ambitious as our plan is, and we have a lot that we want to accomplish, we know we're not going to do everything. And so the question is, can we help you know plant seeds in the garden so that lots of flowers and, and strong trees can grow? We think we can. We think that's starts by showing people a culture for um, how you make hard decisions, how you treat people, how you put the patient first, um, how you actually actively invest in things ahead of when the business plan might suggest you do it. So we actually invest in leadership training at, at pretty real expense through institutions that we were just talking about a minute ago. Um, those are the sorts of commit commitments we actually make. And then on the softer side, but perhaps more importantly, um, I think we, we have to talk about the values in healthcare too, because we're living in a time where some of the highest flyers in our little corner of the world um, have been scorched by the sun because they attempted to take shortcuts or misrepresent what they were actually doing. And there are a lot of examples of this, um, too many, honestly, um, in, in healthcare IT and digital health. And so hopefully we become the training ground for those people and then when you're running this podcast in 10 years and I'm you know out on uh, you know out on, on the, the pasture out on the pasture somewhere um, you know you you'll talk to people who learned at grand rounds that would that would make me really really pleased part of uh, how your your philosophy seems to be um, you know as a tech person who's come into healthcare sort of really navigate you know sort of I would say premised on humility it sounds like um, how you sort of thread the needle between the, I know we both hate the word disruptive, the disruptive potential of, you know, tech people coming in and doing it versus sort of a respect for what's going on and the people, the expertise into what Daphne Kohler called domain expertise. Mm -hmm. And you've really sort of talked about not screwing up doing that. Yeah. Um, is that part of sort of the culture that you've tried to bring to Grand Rounds? We've tried. And, and the thing is, there's there's so much opportunity to correct things that are pretty small actually that are just stupid right like let's just let's just talk about a basic example when you go when you're in the middle of a healthcare journey and let's say you're seeing multiple providers in pursuit of an answer you're going to fill out the same information multiple times that doesn't need to happen that should never happen and so as a matter of product design we work on collecting your records once having you fill out your history once and then we propagate that to your entire care team. So you do not need to do that work, right? That's a, actually a basic thing that's not really that controversial. Does that actually work? I mean, the reason I'm asking is because it's one of those things where everybody who's actually, you know, God forbid, has had a bad, had an experience with the healthcare system says it sucks to be a patient or to have a family member be a patient, invariably, no matter what. And we've all, just like you're saying, this example of filling out the forms, but we all continuously have to do it. So even if you fax something to everyone's healthcare team, don't they still, don't their office, doesn't their office still need to, you know, key it into their particular brand of Epic, their particular version of something? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. We're not going to make this problem completely go away. But my point to the humility question was, humility doesn't mean that you're just going to 
you know, bend over to the way that things have historically worked. You can come in and take a bunch of mutually objectionable ideas like that clipboard from, clipboard from hell yeah. and say, we're going to attack this problem. And there are hundreds of those things. And you can attack those things without feeling like you have to go out and, and chest thump and say, we're going to, you know, we're going to become United Healthcare. We're going to kill those guys because that's stupid. I mean, it's kind of neat that you sort of have this whole tech background, but you sort of have the, um, the pragma- pragmatism to recognize that sometimes you know, the, the, the actual issue that's bothering patients are the things like the clipboard, yeah. all the minor, the seems minor, like the small little indignities that collectively don't let people get sleep. And, you know, there's a lot of the atrogenicity that people get from just having exposure to the healthcare system, ironically. You're, 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 you're right on. I will tell you that, you know, part of the Grand Rounds IP is this thing about understanding the quality of underlying physicians. So we've invested huge data science time in scoring physicians. Turns out you can put that in front of a person and they can say, wow, you've selected a great doctor for me. It's a great match. But if that physician isn't accepting new patients, if they don't have parking, if their waiting room isn't clean, it's not going to work. So you have to attack those problems too. So you talked a little bit earlier about, you know, we, we laughed about, you know, AI and blockchain and all that stuff being a little too ahead of its time and maybe a little overrated at the moment. <clears throat> what do you think is the most underrated opportunity or thing that pe- people aren't working on enough in healthcare? Yeah, I love the notion of the, there are a number of companies that are finding ways to capture the patient-physician interaction when they're in the room via kind of uh, um, sensory devices of various kinds. I love that idea. Mm-hmm. And the transcription ability to, you know, fix a lot of the underlying coding problems, um, you know, through those technologies. I love that idea. I don't think people are spending enough time on that. I also think... Sort of like automating scribes. I think Bob Walker's written about that's that. That's that idea. Yeah. Yep, that idea. Uh, and... And, you know, and you can just take the 20 – you almost think of that as an enabling technology that could then lead to better patient outcomes because the patient can go back over what they heard in the room because so many patients forget. You can think of it as, like, reducing the administrative cost of care. You can think about it as just, frankly, reducing the fraud associated with all sorts of upcoding stuff. So I love that as an enabling technology. The second one is um, – and I'm, you mentioned Anne earlier from 23andMe, and, um, you know, we're, we're good partners and good friends at Grand Rounds. And – I love what they're doing, and I think the idea of taking something that is such a interesting consumer idea that people want to understand their genetics and some basic health indicators and starting to use that as a way to open a conversation about preventative and chronic care, um, I'm, I'm fired up about that, too. That's great. Well, super fun talking to you, as always, Owen. Thanks for being on the show today. You got it. Terrific having you in the studio. Today's guest, Owen Tripp, was speaking to us from Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. He's such a great guy. It's, uh, you know, there are so many qualities that he has that I think are just represent what I think all of us at our best would like to be in healthcare. The idea of the, and it certainly resonates for me, the underlying optimism, but being very grounded on the pragmatic problems, the real problems that people have, trying to intelligently use technology, recognizing the importance of people skills and leadership and culture. I also think just he's a learning entrepreneur. He's somebody who, you know, experiences things, you know, synthesizes them and feeds that back in very well in a different way than many do. I agree. I mean, the idea of being sort of constantly reflective, but also being able to make decisions and move forward, but but learning what sort of, you know, you talk about learning healthcare system, it's great to have a learning entrepreneur trying to improve healthcare. So just a great experience. I also um, have had the pleasure of speaking to his team a couple of times and, and doing some mentoring for some of the senior women in his group. And 
I, their commitment to diversity is very real. It's, it's really kind of a cool thing to see. Very, very cool. Well, um, you can follow Lisa Soonin at VentureValkyrie.com. And you can follow David's writing at Forbes. We are grateful to GE Ventures for sponsorship of today's episode. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. Take care.